Uh, So we're just going to be thinking a bit about this passage uh, this morning. Uh, But firstly, I found this quote uh, over the last few weeks from supermodel Elle McPherson, and she once said this, you have nothing to sell except for the image. Image is everything. You have nothing to sell except for the image. The image is everything. And you could argue that for some time, image was everything. Image was everything. But I think that something has shifted in society and the culture that we live in. People are a bit fed up of the sort of celebrity, beautiful, image-conscious couple who have nothing else to offer. There's nothing else about them. It's not enough anymore just to have a good image or present a good image. It's not enough just to be beautiful. We want more. We want something that's honest. We want something that's really believable. Because now... I wonder if authenticity is everything. A consumer survey looking at uh, the influential factors which cause people to make purchases found that authenticity is more important than ever in influencing people. 86% of people said that brand honesty and authenticity was the most important thing in making them buy something. And I wonder what you think the most authentic brands are. McDonald's, Samsung, and Apple. These are seen as the most authentic brands. And fifth is KFC. Anyway, there you go. Um, But why do customers uh, value authenticity in their brands? Uh, Because they think that these companies are are not trying to be something that they are not. But they recognize who they are and what they do best and what customers value most about these brands. And I wonder if maybe this is a message to the church. Authenticity is perhaps the defining word of the 21st century so far. On the one hand, uh, we live in a culture, don't we, that demands authenticity from us. Be real, we're told. Be honest. Be who you are. Be transparent. Be true to who you are. Don't settle for cheap imitations. Go after the real deal. Come close. And if you have a view, express it. Uh, the social media, social media and the internet has given us all the means to express our views. Be authentic. And yet, on the other hand, there is a bit of a problem. Because over the past four or five years, uh, perhaps around the time of President Trump's uh, election, perhaps around Brexit, And also with the rise of what's uh, labelled as progressive secularism, there is another powerful voice which is speaking to us, and it's saying this, what you say is wrong, what you believe is wrong, your political views are wrong, you look wrong, you voted for the wrong thing, you believe the wrong thing, and in fact, you can say whatever you want 
But don't, we don't actually have to believe anything we hear because it might be fake news. Your authenticity is okay as long as it agrees with mine. And so we find ourselves in this vulnerable place between those two things, where we're challenged to be authentic, be real, but only if we comply with the popularist view of that. Dave was speaking at a training session we had here in church yesterday, and he shared with us um, a survey that had been done around uh, President Trump. After his first 12 months in office, uh, Republican Americans were asked uh, if, if people thought that Trump had done a good job. And the result of the survey is this, 85% of American Republican voters thought that Trump was doing a great job after his first 12 months in office. They then asked them a second question. Do you think that the president has lied in his first 12 months of office? 85% of American Republican voters believed that President Trump had lied in his first year of office. There's something going on there, isn't there? around what's important, what's important in authenticity. Our culture seems to value the public face, the achievement, far more than private authenticity. What we're doing in private, perhaps our behavior or what could be seen as our morality, what we spend our money on, that doesn't matter. That doesn't matter as long as what we're doing doesn't hurt anybody. In a culture which prizes authenticity, which prizes reality and the freedom that brings, it feels like in some spheres of life, there is less and less authenticity. It's a funny place to be. And that to me feels quite similar to what is going on in our gospel passage this morning, with the way that the Pharisees critique Jesus in this passage that we had from Luke 5, but also time and again through the gospels. Your disciples, um, the, the, the religious leaders say, your disciples aren't fasting like the Pharisees' disciples are. And why are you hanging out and eating with sinners, with outcasts? It's really not the done thing. And time and again, Jesus challenges them to go to the heart of the law. It's not just about saying the right thing or doing what you perceive to be acceptable, but it's what's going on in your heart which matters, he challenges. It's your intention. What is at the heart of your worship? Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and then not do what I say? And so as the church, as Christians in the 21st century, we need to be leading on this. We need to be authentic in our faith and beliefs and words and actions, both in public out there and in private, in our own lives, in our own hearts and in our own minds. A few years ago, uh, Pope Francis urged leaders in the Catholic Church to do this, to be shepherds living with the smell of the sheep, 
be shepherds living with the smell of the sheep. He was telling his priests, live amongst your flock. Don't be set apart. Be someone who smells like the people around you. And Pope Francis has the right to say that to his priests because he is somebody who lives this out. Pope Francis um, could be living in the Vatican Palace in these extraordinarily grand apartments that are set aside uh, for the Pope. But he chooses to live in a, a small apartment where other priests and visiting, visitors uh, to the Vatican live. He eats in the refectory alongside the other people and tries to live as much as possible amongst normal people. And this is exactly what Jesus is doing here in this passage as he sits and eats with those who are perceived as outcasts. God is looking for leaders and God is looking for disciples who smell like sheep, who are authentic who have credible, authentic spirituality, who are credible and authentic disciples. And so Jesus is authentic, and he calls people to authentic faith. Jesus' teaching, the way he treats people, the miracles he performs, it all makes sense. When he teaches, blessed are the poor, for yours is the kingdom of God, Or blessed are you when people hate you and exclude you and insult you. He demonstrates what that blessing actually looks like. What what does it look like to be blessed when you're poor or an outcast? He says to these people, come and follow me. In my kingdom, you have a place. In my kingdom, you belong. You can be healed. You can be forgiven. You can be set free. I see you and I know you and you're welcome. He sees people. And in this passage that we've looked at this morning, Jesus sees Levi. Levi is a tax collector. Uh, That means he's basically working for the Romans, the occupying force. He's uh, associating with Gentile people, non-Jews. And to many, uh, they would view Levi as having sold his soul to the devil. Levi is shunned. He's an outcast. He's seen as unclean. And somehow Jesus has become aware of Levi, sat in his tax collecting booth, uh, demanding money, almost extorting money from people as they pass down the road. Jesus has become aware of him. And Jesus sees Levi. This word that we translate as sees implies that Jesus gazes intently at Levi or examined him closely. When he sees Levi, he knows exactly what he's getting with Levi. There's another Levi in the Bible, in the Old Testament. Levi, who is Jacob and Leah's son. Leah is the wife that Jacob married after being tricked into marrying Leah. And we know from the story of Jacob and Leah uh, that Leah longed for Levi, her Levi, to be loved and to really belong to his father, Jacob. And the name Levi means attached or joined. 
And yet here is our Levi in the New Testament, a tax collector who belongs to nobody. He doesn't belong. And maybe what Jesus sees in him is this deep need to attach or to be joined, to belong to his saviour. Jesus sees Levi and he sees his deepest need. He sees him in all his brokenness, in all the reality of his life. And he says, Levi, I see you. Come, follow me. Jesus sees you and he sees me. He sees us in the reality of our lives. He sees beyond the image and what we put out there. He knows us. He knows our deepest needs and our brokenness. And he calls us, I see you, come and follow me. And Levi, he gets up and he leaves everything and he follows Jesus. This was a massive deal for Levi. You know, when Levi left his tax collecting booth on that road, there was absolutely no going back for Levi. Uh, Maybe James and John, the fishermen who Jesus called, they could go back to their boats and their nets and their fish because they were still there. But once Levi left his tax collecting booth, there was absolutely no going back because he'd been working for the Romans and he got up and he'd left what he'd been doing before. There was no going back. And in the UK... Our general tendency is to be slightly cynical and to doubt and to question and to resist committing to people or causes until we're convinced. But Levi, he saw something in Jesus which made him get up and leave everything he had and take that massive risk with his life and follow Jesus. And I was thinking, what did he see in Jesus? And I think he saw an authenticity in Jesus in a way that he'd never seen in the people he lived amongst, in the Jews that walked past him every day who criticized him and called him a sinner, who treated him badly. And yet in Jesus, he saw something that was real and that was genuine. He saw love that was real and authentic. And Jesus offered him new hope and new life and a way forward. And Levi is so excited by what's just happened to him. He, he throws this banquet in his house and he invites Jesus and he invites a whole load of other tax collectors along. But when the Pharisees see what's going on, they, they pull Jesus' disciples aside and they say to him, you know, why do you eat and drink with all these sinners, with these tax collectors, with the scum of the earth? All they see are the others, the sinners, and they stand outside on the edge. When I was a student first time round, I lived in one of those, you know, infamous student houses, 10 Dallas Road in Lancaster. Uh, It was brilliant. And uh, seven of us lived there for two years. And, And we thought it was great. It was a great place to live. And at the end of my first term, my mum arrived to pick me up. And she came into the house and she sort of looked around and she went, this is disgusting. This is disgusting. And I was like, 
I love this house. What's wrong with it? And she went, it's absolutely vile. And my mum is not like this normally. She was like, it's absolutely vile. And she opened the fridge and she was like, that fridge is disgusting. And I thought about it. And I thought, it is. It's disgusting. And I opened the fridge and I looked inside and it was moldy. The kitchen was disgusting. We hadn't cleaned the bathroom for 14 weeks. We hadn't hoovered that house. It was truly vile. But until my mum had pointed it out to me, I hadn't seen it. Those religious leaders, they were so physically close to Jesus, and yet they didn't see him. They didn't really see him. They didn't really see what he was all about. Their self-righteousness, their rules, their cynicism, their legalism, it had built up to such an extent that they didn't see Jesus for who he really is. I wonder if we sometimes do that as disciples of Jesus today. We can be so close to him and yet also so far from authentic faith. Because perhaps we're a little scared to acknowledge our need for Jesus. And so we become the same as everything and everybody else. We're scared to acknowledge our need for Jesus. So even though he's really close, we're missing out. I wonder why it is. I wonder why we don't acknowledge our need for Jesus. Maybe we've become so assimilated to the culture that we live in. We actually think, you know, actually this world's really nice. Um, You know, I'm doing okay. Everything around me, everybody around me seems to be doing okay. We're all good, actually. And this is exactly what the Pharisees were doing. They were like, you know, I'm following the rules. I'm doing the right thing. It looks like I'm having a good life. And we do the same, don't we? We say, you know, I'm okay. I'm acceptable. I do good things. I'm sorted. But actually, do we really acknowledge our need for Jesus? Our need for forgiveness? I know I haven't done anything massively wrong this week, I don't think. But do I want you to see a minute-by-minute video on that screen behind me of my thoughts and my actions and the thing I've said? No, I do not. I really need Jesus. And what about the world, the need that this world has for Jesus? Levi, he left his life and he followed Jesus And then he immediately invited people to come into his house and to meet Jesus with him. His faith was so authentic. It was so out there. Why don't we do that? Why don't I throw a party and invite all my friends to come and hear about Jesus? Why don't I, why do I get scared about inviting people to the Alpha course or to church? Why am am I not always honest in conversations about what's really important to me and the place that Jesus, uh, the part that Jesus plays in my life? Because I don't want to be made to feel vulnerable or I'm scared of being ridiculed or being challenged or I want to fit in. I don't want to stand out. I want to be accepted. But Why? What do I want to be accepted into? Have I forgotten that actually the people all around me that I live my life with really need Jesus? I sort of convince myself that everything and everyone is all right 
even though I know that everything and everyone really isn't all right. Very infrequently, I go to the gym. I actually hate the gym with a passion. So sometimes I go to the gym, and what I do is I don't actually go to the gym. I go and swim about four lengths in the swimming pool, because swimming's really boring in my view as well, so that I can go to the steam room. Because I love a steam, I love the steam room. And a few months ago, I was in the steam room, in the gym. I can usually manage 10 to 15 minutes. I'd probably been in there about 10 minutes at this point. And the door, I was having a lovely time on my own. And the door opens and in walks this middle-aged man and sits opposite me. It's never a good thing, is it? It's always a little bit awkward. Uh, And he sits opposite me, and I say hello, and he says hello, and then he says, do you come here often? And I'm thinking, that's a bit of a dodgy question. And and we start chatting away, and, uh, and then he says, what do you do then? Sat here, sweating, in my cosy, in a steam room, and he says, what do you do then? Now, normally, I love this question because this is a great opportunity in my job to sort of say, oh, well, you know, I do this and then to share my faith. But I was really getting a sweat on. I was starting to feel really uncomfortable simply because of the steam room. And I thought, what am I going to do? And so I said, I'm a vicar. And he said, well, where are you a vicar? And I said, oh, at St. Paul's and St. George's uh, on York Place. And he was like, oh, that's really interesting. I know a few people that go there. And I'm thinking, do you? Great thinking, I've got to get out of here, but oh my goodness, I mean, I've got this amazing opportunity to share my faith, what am I going to do? So I just said, can we just take a moment? And I lunged for the door, I said, I've just got to go and get some fresh air, opened the door, literally went out and went, (gasps) thinking I was about to die in there, noticed the water fountain there, virtually stuck my head under that water fountain, cooled off a bit, went in, looking cool as cucumber, uh, sat down and started to tell him all about our church. And then he said, "Uh, so why are you a Christian? And I got, him to tell, I got to tell him why I'm a Christian. He then wanted to know when I'd become a Christian. And then he started to share with me uh, his, some of his own story and his search for spirituality, his search for meaning. He told me about his sister and various other things. And it was like in that moment that I got the opportunity uh, in a slightly awkward circumstance to invite this guy to come and sit at the banqueting table and to see Jesus. The Holy Spirit gives us opportunities, sometimes not in the moments that we're prepared for or that we want or we expect. Often we just, though, need to not be afraid and to grab them and to recognize that there is a deep need in people to know know Jesus, the real, the authentic Jesus, not maybe the Jesus that they perceive is the Jesus, or maybe not the the Jesus they might have encountered as a child, but the real, authentic Jesus. I love Jesus' retort to the criticism of the Pharisees in verse 31 and 32. He says this, It's not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I've not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. He's basically saying, Doctors can't do their work amongst well people. And my job is to call sinners to repentance 
and so I have to hang out with sinners. Preacher Robert Munger puts it like this. The church is the only organization in the world where the one requirement for membership is the unworthiness of the candidate. We're all unworthy, but everybody is welcome because ultimately we're all unworthy as each other. It doesn't matter what your background is. It doesn't matter your social class, your education, your job your political views, whether you'll remain or leave or deal or no deal or yes or no or socialist or liberal or centre or left or conservative, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter your race. It doesn't matter your gender or your sexuality. It doesn't matter your past. We're all unworthy. We cannot ever be good enough to make the cut but in a demonstration of radical love and radical grace, Jesus says to each of us, come and follow me, I see you. This is the new wine that Jesus speaks about towards the end of this passage. And in Galatians 3, 28 and 29, Paul says, there is neither Jew or Gentile, slave or free, male or female. We are all one in Christ Jesus. Now, that doesn't mean that Jesus calls us to follow him and you can just carry on regardless. We can just do what we fancy. No, he calls us to come and follow him, to repent of our sins, to live out the kingdom of God and to take up our cross daily and follow him, whatever that might look like. Paul puts it like this in the second letter to the Christians in Corinth, 2 Corinthians 5. He says, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come. The old has gone and the new is here. Jesus changes us. He doesn't leave us the same. This is the new wine. These are the new wineskins. Jesus brought in a revolution of authentic religion for all time. This new wine that Jesus demonstrates and speaks of, uh, that he brings in, is still the same. Jesus continues to call ordinary people like you and I to follow him. He calls us to be honest and he calls us to be real. He calls us to be authentic, committed disciples, to follow him into the unknown. And when we see our need for Jesus, our lives are transformed. And when we see the need for Jesus in our world today, then the longing of our heart should be to share the authentic Jesus and our authentic faith with the people that we live our lives with. We see our need to leave everything and follow him. We see our need to give. We see our need to welcome. We see our need to share his love and forgiveness. We see our need to be daily transformed by the Holy Spirit. He calls us to real and authentic faith. 